back to a better world. This is your host, Mitchell J. Raven, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show. I have invited to join me here the economist Kate Rayworth, who writes on the subject of Donut Economics. The name of her book is Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. God knows we've been stuck in another century for a long time. And Kate is involved in helping us sort of update our thinking about economics and, as a result, social and ecological change. She is a senior visiting research associate teaching in Oxford University's Environmental Change Institute, where she also went to school, by the way, and is a senior associate of the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability. Over the last two decades, Kate has worked as senior researcher at Oxfam as co-author of the UN's Human Development Report at the United Nations Development Program and as a fellow of the Overseas Development Institute in the villages of Zanzibar. She has been named by The Guardian as one of the top 10 tweeters on economic transformation. In today's dialogue, Mitchell and Kate will explore how an economic system can be not just of service to the limited few, but to all. So, Kate Rayworth, welcome to A Better World. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Pleasure to have you. Good. Now, it's so interesting. I hope that you were going to outpace our current president with tweeting because <laughs> <laughs> we need some healthy competition. I like to sleep at 3 a.m., but otherwise I'll, I'll try. <laughs> yes, very good. So, if you would, you, you know, you have such an interesting background. You started studying economics at Oxford University in order to change the world, but your life went through some interesting metamorphosis from that point. Why don't you share with our audience what that was, and then we'll circle back around to the, uh, the nitty-gritty of donut economics. Great. Okay. So I went to university to study economics because I thought it would change the world. I thought it would be um, the language I needed. I needed to speak the mother tongue of public policy if I was going to make this difference. But the theories that I was taught left me so frustrated and disappointed because the issues that I cared about, like environmental integrity and social justice, were pushed to the margins of, of the theories. Um, the natural world came in. It was, it was referred to as an externality if you harmed the living world. Well, if you're going to call something an externality, you've already told me how important it isn't. So I was really... Not true. It's sort of like collateral damage. Exactly. I was so frustrated by that. I, my professors were saying, you should stay and do a PhD. And I thought, but I don't want to become more and more specialized in this. So I, I left academic economics and I threw myself into real world challenges. So I went and worked for three years in the villages of Zanzibar, working with some of the world's poorest people who survived with nothing but the forest around them, their communities and their wits. And I learned what entrepreneurship looks like when you're penniless, and it's extraordinary, the, the, the resilience of these communities I met. Then I spent four years working at the United Nations, helping to write the Human Development Report, so really looking at an overview of human development and human rights and where are we going this century, and it gave me a big-picture view that I'd really been missing, very human-focused. And then I spent a decade working with Oxfam, campaigning on climate change, campaigning on women workers' rights. And after all this, I realized the obvious, which is you can't walk away from economics because it frames the world we live in. It's all around us. And I realized that if I wanted to change it, then I had to walk back towards it. 
but I was going to flip it on its head. So what I did was draw a new picture of how, what I thought human progress looks like in the 21st century. And I asked the question, if this is a new vision of progress, what's the economic mindset that's going to give us even half a chance of getting there? And that's what my book's all about. That is fantastic. It's so interesting to see how you came full circle. And so it's therefore no big surprise that you work with the donut. (laughs) (laughs) So what does it look like then if we were to take your thinking about donut economics that you have embedded in the book and your work and applied it to talk about real world? You know, right now we have a devastating situation across the world of the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. It's more extreme than ever before where they say the wealthiest 400 families own some 50% of what is considered the world's assets. I'd like to make the distinction material assets, but you know what I mean. And this has created a condition and a polar tension that is just daunting for the mind to actually grasp. How we got here is a whole conversation, which we just had actually on A Better World TV, which you know many people will be able to see. But from the point of view of change, how do we implement what you're talking about? So I think we have an economy today that is financially, politically, and socially addicted to endless growth. It's been, in fact, designed to pursue that through the financial system that's always pursuing a a high rate of return, through the political system that every government feels their country must keep growing its GDP to retain their geomilitary and their political market power, and through society we've spent uh, the last century being indoctrinated as consumers to the belief that we transform ourselves by buying something more. So the addiction has been seeded deep, but I think none of those are insurmountable. We need to get off this addiction to endless growth and construct an economy that enables us to pursue two design principles. One, create an economy that's distributive by design. By that, I mean that value that's created should be shared far more equitably with all those who helped to create it. And an economy that's regenerative by design. So instead of having industries that currently cut against the living cycles of the world, we we take materials, use them for a while, and then dump them in landfill, we actually work together with the cyclical processes of the world. So if we were to create a world that is regenerative and distributive by design, it asks for a completely different business mentality, completely different kind of financial system. I think it requires a new economics education, a new understanding of who we are and who we can be. And I think that's actually the transformative and exciting journey that we can go on now. Absolutely. What I really hear you saying is that uh, there are a lot of aspects to our human character, our human beingness, not to mention our actual human biology, that is far beyond the narrow bandwidth that we have been imaged to be. And uh, I very much appreciated something you said recently regarding image and the role of pictures in our envisioning ourselves and therefore our future. Could you share a little bit about that? Yeah, when you study economics, you are taught from textbooks that are a lot of words and then equations. And the idea is that the superior form of learning is through reading long and rather dry text and mastering mathematical equations. And this is somehow scientific and superior. But actually, 
off to the side of these are little diagrams that are seen as illustrations on the side. What I've realized over time is it's the diagrams that actually stick with us. I, I call it intellectual graffiti that lingers on the mind <laughs> long after the words and equations have faded. Because if you ask any neuroscientist, they will tell you that more than half of the nerve fibers in our brain are connected to our vision and that images go into our visual cortex at the back of our heads and they stay there far, far longer than words do. So we should be really attentive about the images that we allow to be put in our heads through the educational system, the images that we draw, that we teach, and that we use in the way we understand and try to change the world because they are paradigm changing. Beautiful. It's absolutely true. I, with my background in psychology, look at things psychologically, emotionally, and even psychoanalytically to some extent. And I see that the tendency toward greed is a function of this image that we have all had emblazoned in our brain that goes back centuries to largely a, a Catholic idea, not in the true sense of the word Catholic, but rather religious, political Catholic, of original sin. This may sound funny, but this idea that we are not enough, that we are not worthy, that we're actually a sinner. And by the way, even though I'm born Jewish, uh, this applies across the board because it's a cultural phenomenon. It doesn't recognize the differences between people of different religions. It doesn't matter. It's sort of like the wind. It blows through everyone and hits upon everything. So that image of our not being worthy, and therefore what goes with it, is that we're not lovable, that we have to earn someone's love, a parent's love. We have to earn God's love. This creates an internal set of conditions um, and an unconscious unhappiness that people seek to compensate for it by grabbing, i.e. acquiring and stuffing themselves with things and with power through money. So I'm outlining something that's not actually very flattering for a human being but I'm suggesting that it's a cultural expression of our funny, peculiar Western programming. And so to get free of that trap, it's healthy to kind of step out of it and look to it from outside. Therefore, we have some leverage on it. And we can start to free ourselves from that mad, limited idea of who it is to be a human being. It's a cultural embeddedness and program that we need to step out of. And once we do, you know, it's like, yay, I'm free. You know, the old witch has been melted and dead. You know, and we can start to live our lives and get back in touch with that sense of normal generosity and charity and service. You know, I'm making things sort of black and white. It's not. It's way grayer than I'm saying, but I'm just going to get to this substratum so we can see sort of where we're coming from to be a, a normal, healthy human being. What are your thoughts about that? I think that's fascinating, and I, I love the idea of considering the original scene in relation to who economics tells us we are. And if, as you're describing, if uh, we are said to have original sin and we can never earn enough, we can never, and, and even listen to that language, earning enough, right? It's almost as if we are seeking money, earning enough love. Can we ever earn enough 
back. Uh, it, it puts us on a mission of striving always for more because if the sin is original, it can never be wiped out. So it embeds this uh, notion of insatiable wants, and that was partly what happened in economic theory. As this character called rational economic man at the heart of economics was created, one of the attributes that he was endowed with was insatiable wants by the, the economist Alfred Marshall. And he said, man is a creature who's insatiable in his wants, and the, the more he gets, the more sophisticated he becomes in realizing he wants more things. It was very convenient for the economic modeling that they, they created this character who can never have enough. And what, it, what we can learn from psychology, and psychologists have gone and done experiments with, with economic students, is that who we tell ourselves we are shapes who we become. So if we tell ourselves we are insatiable beings, then there's something wrong with you if you say, I have a, a philosophy of sufficiency. What, what's wrong with you? You must be cheating. You must be denying it to yourself. But, of course, many of the world's happiest people are the ones who live by a philosophy of sufficiency and the wonderful, I think, uh, Dara saying, you know, he who knows he has enough is rich. That's right. And so there are many other ways of looking at this, but in, certainly in Western, Western economics, the character of rational economic man has told us that we should be competitive, that we are self-interested, that if we use our self-interest, this will create the best economy for all, and that our wants are insatiable. Well, this description of ourselves to ourselves has shaped who we become, and, and you get the, you know, the old golden geckos of Wall Street, greed is good, and these characters become revered. But there are going to be more than 10 billion humans alive on this planet this century. And if we continue to imagine and conduct and justify ourselves as this character of rational economic man, we stand very little chance of thriving together. So repainting the portrait of humanity at the heart of economics, which leaches out into so many other fields of science, is, I think, the most important portrait that's going to be commissioned this century because it gives us a chance of being a far better version of ourselves. I like that so much. I, I so agree. So what we're seeing is that to create a healthy economic picture and landscape, we have to have a healthy psycho-emotional and physical, physically healthy landscape. Absolutely. One of the chapters in my book is called Nurture Human Nature, because I think our nature can go in many different ways. I very much like the words of the philosopher David Hume. He said, in each of us lies something of the serpent and something of the dove. I have eight-year-old twins. I can see every day in them a little bit of the serpent, the kind of grabby and the vindictive on each other and getting one up over each other. And I can see the dove, the generosity, the caring for each other when they're hurt. And I think one of the fundamental tasks of a parent is to nurture that dove and to nurture sociability, to nurture sharing. Uh, and raising twins, you really have to teach them sharing from early on because these are both parts of our nature but we can nurture the better side of ourselves. And it's not just through behavior, it's through language. So some fascinating tests have been done, giving university students um, a questionnaire about their values. Two groups of students given exactly the same questionnaire. First group were given one, and it was called Consumer Reaction Survey. Second one, identical questions, it was called Citizen Reaction Survey. Well, guess what? The ones who were given the one called the Consumer Reaction Survey, they, in their answers, they gave more importance to status, success, recognition, because the consumer in them had been activated just by the use word. of the word. So who we tell ourselves we are shapes who we become. It means we should care a great deal about words like global citizen or neighbor or community member. 
And when you look around and you, and you see in the world that even in the space of healthcare or education, the language of consumers and clients is coming in. Oh, it's turning us citizens into consumers. It's addressing us as if all of these spaces were marketplaces and it, it activates the consumer, I think, to the detriment of our own health or education, but also our, our sense of civic engagement and democratic engagement. Absolutely. These are points that are so vital and they're just right up my alley, having been a wordsmith all my life and uh, appreciating the nuances and subtleties of the use of language in order to create space, create happiness and well-being. It's just, it's, this is the relationship. You recognize that language and image has a physiological correlate it shows up literally in the brain in our neural network, and then it sort of sinks down into our heart space, which, by the way, is really, I put it as part of our brain. It's our highest brain. And as I'm listening to you, Kate, I'm kind of gathering that there is, um, there is a brain correlation, like when you were saying about David Hume and this idea or looking at your twins and seeing the dove and the serpent. <clears throat> the serpent, interestingly, relates to uh, traditionally the Kundalini mm-hmm. and the idea that there's the serpentine aspect to our spine. And the first part of the brain it hits is what's called the brainstem, or often referred to as the reptilian brain, nice. which has as its emotion one emotion, and that's fear. Mm-hmm. And that leads to fight or flight, mm-hmm. yes. okay. or actually freeze. <laughs> And so when we operate our lives, hence our economy and our economic dealings, uh, from that space, we're going to have a reptilian kind of world. However, if we go mammalian and we start to appreciate the mammary glands and the nurturing that occurs from the mammary glands and the love and the compassion that develops from that. And then we even go further into the prefrontal cortex. We start to create a sense of coherence. In fact, they've mapped the development of the prefrontal cortex to the experience of a sense of brotherhood, humanity, love, compassion. Those people that have those experiences, when reported, show a greater neural activity in the prefrontal cortex. You can go one more step actually to the heart. I know the heart is connected to the circulatory system, but what is it circulating? I'm thinking that it's circulating love. We call it blood. <laughs> but you know, blood relations is where there's greatest love. In fact, you know, it starts to get very interesting when you start tracking the different systems and their interactions as well as the idea of love and blood relations. You know, And so if the heart is the largest thinking organ we have as traditional and indigenous societies have been telling us for all these years, think with your heart. Do what thy heart bid thee. That kind of language is very interesting. Then we see that there's a higher level that we, out of which we can be operating our society, hence our economics. Great. So one of the things I've wanted to do in communicating these ideas was not only to write a book which is full of words that you read one at a time in a straight order, but to take our engagement with rethinking economics out of our heads 
and take it down into our bodies, into our hearts, and into our bellies and laughter. So I've made a series of one-minute animations for each of the seven ways of thinking and worked with some of the world's best stop-motion animators to make these really fun, funny, beautiful, awesome, witty uh, videos because it takes us away from thinking economics is about understanding difficult concepts and equations. The only numbers in I my book. I so love this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only numbers in my book are the page numbers. Just for anybody who uh, doesn't want to do maths, there's no maths. So but it's funny. about showing the patterns of the world. And so I teach yeah. at Oxford University, and I wanted to teach my students about systems thinking. Now, systems thinking is about complexity. Yeah. You can do that by teaching with equations. You can do that by using diagrams. But what I did was I got a video of a, of a large flock of starlings. Now, there's something that starling birds do, extraordinary thing at, at about sunset, where I live in Oxford, um, and they do it all over Europe, certainly. Huge flocks of starlings gather. And just before they settle down for the, the night, they start doing what's called a murmuration, which is this extraordinary swirling, whooping, whooshing pattern in the sky. They make these extraordinary shapes in the sky. And they are flying. It's like a whole flock of birds dancing together. That's choreography. It's like choreography. Chore- it's almost as if someone's flicked a switch and the birds have gone into an incredible dance routine. And it's utterly unpredictable what's going to happen next. If you stand with a group of people watching starlings in a murmuration, there's this lovely gasp of the human beings watching because they are phenomenal. They, they move with a rapidity and a connectivity between them that we, we humans could never, ever do. And I show a video of this to my students, and I say, that is complexity. And I can see an awe in their eyes. I can, he- I can hear it in their breath. They, they are responding from a different place. And the first time I did that, I thought, this is the answer. This is the way to talk to people about new economics. Show them the beautiful, incredible, amazing patterns in the world and explain that this is what we're trying to understand because the economy, too, is a complex system. So if you can see starlings rising and falling in the sky, well, think of that also like the rise and the fall of the stock market, the rise of the 1%, the collapse of ecosystems. These are all complex systems. And if we learn to see these patterns in the world and in the economy, we'll have a much better chance of understanding how it actually works. If anyone's listening and thinks, what is she talking about, these birds? I really recommend going on, going on the Internet and looking for a video of a murmuration of starlings and sit back and be awed. Mm, that is so beautiful, Kate. I so appreciate it. We are speaking with Kate Rayworth, the author of Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. She is, after all, an economist who does teach at Oxford University, and she's done a tremendous amount of work related to sustainability and creating a new economics. There's a whole new economic model that's actually spreading across the world, some of which is through imagery, not through complex mathematical uh, equations, which she is sharing with us. Remember that you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m., as well as on television in New York City on Mondays at 7 p.m. If you get our newsletter, fantastic, and if you do not yet get it, please go to www.abetterworld.tv and make a point of getting it. It's for free. It's available. It lets you know what shows we're doing with whom on A Better World and become part of our A Better World family and community. So, Kate, this is so much fun. I'd love to take a look at the subject of growth. Now, in terms of myths, 
I think this is a myth, and I want to I want to brag for a moment. I want to boast because I am not an economist at all. I am an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, an eco entrepreneur for the most part, but um, I have shoes, so I'm not exactly barefoot. But um, I came across this just in my own mind that this idea of growth is really just a story. It actually has very little to do with reality, and I'd love to hear what you have to say. I got out of the idea of biomimicry. I came up with the idea that the human body is always looking for homeostasis. The biologically, that's what our body goes for. Our mind and our hearts and our souls are striving to grow, and it's fantastic. Um, however, it's always connected to our physical reality. So from that point of view, I began to think that being very concrete, there is a company in a town, and based on the ebb and flow of life, seasons, etc., health, illness, dying, births, etc., there will be more or less a change in the employment in that uh, town, or even a company in that town of, say, somewhere between five and ten percent over the course of ten years. They'll gain a few more people, they'll lose a few more people, but in general, that big, you know, five and ten store is providing the same products, the same services to generations of families year in, year out. There's not much changing. It's almost homeostatic. <clears throat> yes, some change, not huge. Is there much growth? Not much growth. Maybe even zero growth. It's just staining. And I'm using that sort of as a model for what I began to think as a viable economic model. There's no growth. Just like there's, we could have a world of zero waste. So we could actually have a world of zero economic growth. Everything is just sort of planing as it is now, which means there's less grabbing. Go back to that idea of acquisition. We just we have what we have. We get a little bit more. We give away a little bit more. And we more or less are hanging out in the same space we've been for a dozen or two dozen years or whatever it may be. Then, through one of my listeners, actually, I found out about something called Economic Growth at the Crossroads and the Steady State Solution, a book called Supply Shock by a guy named Brian Check, who is, I think his background is in microbiology. And he uses that as also the basis. And I went, my God, I'm an economic thinker. <laughs> you know, who would have thunk it? But anyway, <clears throat> I don't have any formal background whatsoever. But I'm just interested in what you would have to say and how that dovetails or not with some of your thinking. Well, if you were if you were an economic thinker in the sense of having had an economic education, you wouldn't think like that at all, because you would have been taught that we need an economy that grows without limit. In fact, you've never been told that. It would just be so deeply assumed that you would be oriented towards a growth economy and growth would be seen as a success factor. Because in all of my years of education in economics, we never talked about whether growth was necessary or indeed always possible and what you would do if it didn't come. So let's stand back from economics and look at the living world. And I, I, the way I think is deeply aligned with the way you think. Because in the living world, growth is a wonderful, healthy phase. 
from your children's feet to the Amazon forest to the apple tree in your back garden, things grow, and then they grow to maturity. And when they mature, they thrive. So, you know, my kids' feet are growing fast now, and it's really expensive. But one day I hope they will stop growing, because if they don't stop growing, they won't be able to sit at my kitchen table anymore and be part of my family. So, Interesting. Right? Think, yeah. And yeah. in fact, here's, here's a point I would say. Think of anything, anything you love, and imagine what would happen to it if it grew forever. It would actually be destroyed. And, of course, within our own bodies, to bring back to the body as you were talking about, when something tries to grow forever within our body, we call it cancer. And we actually recognize, you know, in the economy, growth is good, right? But when we come to our bodies, she has a growth. That's, that's a danger because anything that tries to grow forever destroys itself or the system on which it depends. And that's precisely what cancer does. So it's bizarre that in the field of economics, we never ask that question of at what point is growth enough? Uh, or too much. Too much, indeed. What point is it too much? At what point? And what? It, what could it be destroying? Could it be destroying the community? Could it be destroying the living world? So we need to overcome this addiction to growth thinking. And we. And I really liked your example of coming into thriving. You can have a business that thrives for generations in a town. Now the only problem about that business is that no financier is going to want to invest it because the financier. Is coming from a financial, the DNA of finance is to get the maximum rate of return. So 20th century finance is not interested in that business. What we need is 21st century finance that says, I absolutely understand the thriving of your business and I want to enable it to happen. And there's a wonderful um, new economic thinker who thinks about regenerative economics called John Fullerton who runs something called the Capital Institute. He came out of J.P. Morgan. He was at the heart of Wall Look at that shock on your face. He was at the heart of Wall Street, and he looked at himself in the mirror one day and said, what am I doing? What am I part of? He left. He did a lot of deep reading. And now he's come over to the side saying, I want to be part of creating a regenerative economy. And what would it look like to create a financial system that enables that? And he's created something called Evergreen Direct Investing, which precisely would aim to provide finance to a company that has matured and is providing the fruits, right? The tree is no longer growing and shooting up, but of course it's fruiting. And so there's all sorts of new economic thinking about providing financial models that actually respect that we need an economy that, like nature, grows until it comes to maturity and can thrive. That is beautiful. In fact, Kate, what you are doing is reminding me of the number of people who have defected from companies like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and have seen the light. They have mm-hmm. seen something bigger than the world they were, uh, the life they've been living. And they've gone on mainly into the world of green investing, renewable energy investing, recognizing the role of the photon in our energy future, of wind, of geothermal, of micro-hydro technologies, and it changes everything. The fact is, and I learned this from uh, my colleague and dear friend Hazel Henderson, uh, she has um, the Green Transition Scoreboard, it's called. There is $8.1 trillion invested in the green economy. So no president of any country, of any bank, is going to be turning that around. It's here to stay, and more and more people are getting it, 
and they are shifting their thinking about it. In fact, it seems ironic, not at all, but the uh, top people at companies such as Chevron and ExxonMobil, all the big oil giants, completely know what the future is. And they're simply looking to, in their old 19th century fashion, dig the wells, still grab the oil, and do it while they can because they know what the future is. And they've already invested in green. They're already all over renewable. And, I mean, Chevron is one of the biggest geo thermal purveyors in the world, and they've been that way for at least 10 years. So what we're dealing with is a lot of propaganda because the writing is on the wall and the writing is in green letters. (laughs) So I know a lot of what you do is involved in sustainability. Could you share with us a little bit about how that uh, figures into the work that you're doing? Yeah, so so coming back to the donut diagram, um, the inside of the donut is a space where people are falling short on life's essentials, be it food, water, health, education, and we want to get everybody out of the central hole, but we also don't want to go over the outside crust of the donut because that is a space in which we protect Earth's living systems on which we fundamentally depend. So we need companies that taking their inheritance from 19th and 20th century capitalism. If a company you know, sees this donut diagram and says, right, we want to be a company that moves into the donut, a really interesting question is, what would that journey look like for them? And it, let's, let's go to the heart of the beast and say, what if it was an oil company? Um, and I've had some oil company executives, and I've presented the donut in front of large groups of uh, executive education. They've come up to me and said, I love this. This is fantastic. It's really helped me situate our business. And I think, wow, because I think if you take this diagram seriously, that is a some deep psychotherapy for you. I mean, this is really yeah. profound transformation. Uh-huh. I think sometimes the first step, they'll say, oh, yes, we uh, we respect everybody's rights in our supply chains. We pay our workers a fair wage. So they'll look at all the social issues and say, well, we're doing very well on that. And um, we are going to invest in clean coal or clean energy, and they might sort of say, you know, we're using water efficiently. or They might try and look at some light tampering, let's say, with their impact. I think if they went on a deeper journey, and we're honest, you'd have to say, you know what, being an oil company, you just can't actually be in the business of putting more oil and carbon emissions back out into the world and be part of bringing ourselves into this safe and just space for humanity in the donut. So the first thing they'd need to do is say, we need to actually get out of oil. We need to become an energy company, not an oil company, but an energy services company. Now, in the last century, it looked like energy came from oil, gas, coal. This century, energy can come from the greatest nuclear reactor in the universe that we know of, our sun. So let's orientate ourselves towards our sun and become used today's technologies. But the journey would be more than that. And I suppose part of that journey would be changing the purpose of the company. So going to the mission of what this company is here for. Many of these companies are founded around the idea that, well, obviously our mission is to maximize shareholder return. And so we're part of lobbying to create uncertainty around climate change because at the end of the day, this actually helps us keep being an oil company and we get more shareholder return today. You change the mission and you they'd have a mission, something more like, we want to provide energy services that help to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet. That would be an extraordinary new purpose for any oil, coal, or gas company. 
with a new purpose, then you ask, then, then you start moving out of oil and gas, and you say, right, we're going to actually invest in solar and wind, and we're still an energy company, but we just transform what we are. They'd also need to transform finance, I think. Um, they'd need to not be beholden to today's shareholders who say, I want the fastest rate of return now, and that's through sucking more oil out of the ground, but you want patient capital that knows you're going to invest longer term in, in technologies that are going to give her a longer term return. Also, looking at distributive technology, because the last century's energy technologies were concentrated. You have a large coal power station. You have a big oil rig. The technologies meant we had concentrated power, and then you'd sell off little bits of the energy down the line. This century's energy technologies, the renewable ones, are distributive by design. It comes back to one of these principles that I believe economies should be structured by. Every little house in a town can have a solar panel on the roof, connect them up, and you've got a natural grid by design. We don't need big centralized companies with big finance behind them anymore. What we actually have is lots of little micro generators in everybody's houses. If people can afford the capital to put that up there, you've utterly transformed not only how we create energy, but the democratic distribution of control over the energy system. So it's politically transformative as well. So there, there is some deep psychotherapy for these companies because in a way, taking to heart the idea of being a company that helps to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet, it's a, it brings it right home, change our purpose. We might even end up becoming a cooperative. Ultimately, it's a deep, deep journey transformation. It's like, you know, visiting a relative who you haven't seen in decades, and they've changed so much you barely recognize them. And perhaps we'll meet some of these companies again in future decades and say, boy, have you changed. For the better. I love that image. That's fantastic. You're beginning to tiptoe into another area of a question that I have to raise, but I first want to just kind of uh, synthesize some of what you're saying, which is this whole idea of local economies building, coming out of the global idea. Well, we have the internet. We're never going to get away from the entirety of global. And I don't know that that's a good thing to leave it entirely. I think that there's value in having cultural connectedness the way we do and even economic connectedness. I don't see anything wrong with that. But having the focal point being local economies, local farm-to-table, local food, stopping this madness of, of taking a head of lettuce in California and bringing it to a New York supermarket, as an example, or across... Uh, from Asia. I mean, it's oh, just yeah. nuts. Yeah. The a carbon footprint that is generated from that is is nothing short of lunatic. Um, <clears throat> so that is, of course, what you're saying about the energy distribution of, you know, micro-sized, you know, um, generators and the like for homes or a series of homes and the like. I, I feel that that's very much the future that we're going in. And there's, look, there's the whole idea of transition towns, for instance. There's a huge, there's new economics. In fact, before we were talking, I, I think I spoke to one of your colleagues from Oxfam many years ago um, when I did a show on the new economics, and uh, his name is escaping me this moment, but very interesting material about how this entire wave is occurring. In fact, a lot of what we're talking about has been underway for the last, 20, 30 years, in some cases longer, but more immediately for the last 10 or 20 years, people have really been 
taking stock of where we are and where we need to go. And one of the examples, expressions of that is the $8.1 trillion that's been invested. Private equity funds, hedge funds that you would think is just, you know, the big gorilla in the room, which they often are too. But some of them um, really see what is going on and in some cases what needs to go on. In fact, you know, I'm part of the beginning of a kind of a, a hedge fund development that is all centered on charitable giving. Its entire purpose for existence is to be able to generate sufficient funds to help deal with such things as human trafficking and drought conditions in different parts of the world and other uh, humanitarian as well as environmental issues that are plaguing us all. So I want to frame something in one way, and I, this is going to sound really funny because I am not a fan of our current president at all. But there are certain things that he says as a businessman that I actually very much appreciate. And one of them is, I think solving the issue in Israel and Palestine, as an example, is much simpler than we think. And I think that there's a value in that. And I didn't need to quote him in order to say this because I've been saying this forever. It, when you get people sitting around a table talking and you break bread with them and you chat and you laugh and you smile and you tell bad jokes, you are warming up the human hearts. And when you do that, miracles happen. And what appeared so impossible, all of a sudden, even if the people are in finance and driven toward that quarterly dividend that they want it to be maximum, or they're gonna, you're going to be dealing with like Potter in It's a Wonderful Life, you know, they're really, at the end of the day, a human being. And everybody has generosity in their heart. Everybody has kindness in their heart. It's that dove that you see in your children that you were speaking about, Kate. And if we can speak to that part of each other, we can really develop an economics, like you're talking about an economy, as well as just overall a better world. I absolutely agree. Um, in cases in Israel-Palestine, there's a, an extraordinary project that I think is called the Parent Circle, where parents um, on both sides of the conflict who have lost a child in the conflict come together and they talk to each other and they recognize that whether they're Israeli or Palestinian, the thing that connects them greater is that they have, have a devastating loss in their life. They've lost their child and they forge lifelong friendships. And then they go around schools together as a pair in Israel, in Palestine, and other people are shocked. How could you stand with this Israeli? How could you stand with that Palestinian? But they say, he's like my brother now because we have connected at a far more profound human value, which is our loss and our love of our children and our respect for each other's love of our children. So it's one example of connecting with the whole human being and finding those values that create cooperation, mutuality, and mutual respect in us, which have been so stripped out of economic thinking. Let's go back to Adam Smith. He wrote one book which celebrated the role of self-interest in helping make markets work. It's the, it's the wealth, wealth of Nations, and it's you know, seen as the founding text of economics. But he also, some years before, wrote another extraordinary book called Theory of Moral Sentiments, in which he recognized the role of 
our interest in others for making society work. And he talked about our sense of generosity, our public spiritedness. And he said self-interest might be useful for the individual in the market, but it's actually our interest in others that are most important for society to work. And we need all of these together. And poor Adam, he, he created this nuanced portrait, but an economist who came after him, like John Stuart Mill and William Stanley Jevons, they picked up just this rational, uh, or, or rather this self-interested trait, and said, well, let's just put that at the heart of what we call economic man, the man who wants to accumulate wealth. And the rest of our rich, diverse nature got cast off to the side. And Adam Smith's name has been mired in the mud as if he's this, you know, only thinks about self-interest. He'd be mortified to know. If we were to go back and embrace all of that richness that he recognized in us, the power of empathy in us, and create a new model of humanity at the heart of economics today that tells us we are all of these people. And how can we bring all of them to work? How can we create a workplace, a language at work, a financial system, a reward system, a business purpose? that invites us to bring our whole selves to work, to bring not only our spirit of competitiveness, because of course we're competitive and we love, you know, the, the, the neighbors next door. Yeah, and in the villages of Zanzibar. Let me tell you one story. I went into one village. There were, the women were making beautiful clay pottery, and there were two cooperatives, one group on this side of the village, and then you went over a little hill, and there was a group of women on the other side of the village. And I met with each of them separately, and they weren't allowed to spy on them. You know, they weren't allowed spies from the other meeting. And these two cooperatives, I sat with them. They showed me what they were making. I gave them some ideas for new designs. And then I went off, and I came back a month later. Of all the people I worked with in Zanzibar, those two groups of women did the most extraordinary, creative, innovative ideas. And I learned so much, and I thought, I think it's because they are two cooperatives in a village competing with each other. They've spurred each other on to be better and more innovative and do better designs. And it was this lovely combination of cooperation within the group and a healthy competition with your neighbors. It wasn't a vindictive competition. It was a healthy one that spurred innovation. So I learned very early the value of both cooperation and competition. We can bring all of this to work. We can bring our generosity to work. And I love the work of Janine Benyus, the biomimicry expert, who says when she's designing something, her question is, how can we layer so many benefits into this that we can give some away? I mean, what a lovely space to work from, right? It allows us to be innovative. We need to meet our needs of our company. We, maybe we need to turn a profit so that we can continue functioning and pay our staff, and then we can give some away, whether it's in money, but also just social benefits. We can give environmental benefits away. And, of course, those employees want to come skipping into work because they feel that their workplace is aligned with their social values and the values of what they see as important in life. So I think a lot of the 21st century challenge in, in business is creating businesses that actually allow people to bring their whole self to work and all of those values. It's fantastic. That's a great story. Thank you. You know, um, there is an employee-owned movement taking place. I don't know about Europe. I imagine so. But certainly in the United States, a lot of excellent work has been done in these kind of cooperative, but they're they're businesses. It's just they're employee-owned, so they get the benefit. In Michael Moore's film, Capitalism, A Love Story, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's, I think it's really quite funny and lovely, and it tells some stories about such companies. But it also tells a story about um, a CEO in a company out on the West Coast that has 
He's right on the floor of the manufacturer, of the manufacturing facility. He doesn't have some office with a window view looking above from everyone. He is on the floor with all of the workers. And interestingly, he gets paid the same as all of the workers. He said, wait a minute. All I am is just another finger on the hand, basically. All of us are needed. I'm not better. I'm not worse. I'm not more important. I'm not less important. So we just decided everyone gets the same. And to the extent that we do better as a company, then we'll all get a raise together. So this is this whole collective cooperative mindset that's occurring inside capitalism. So I take issue with the idea that the issue is capitalism. I do. And I'd love to hear what I would feel is a coherent story that says why capitalism can't work. I don't see the issue as capitalism. I see the issue as people using it either to their own private personal advantage, as we're talking about, at the expense of others, or for the general cooperative good and benefit of others. What are your thoughts? So the big C word, capitalism, the tricky thing with it is sometimes we mean different things by it. So before I jump in, I want to ask you you what you mean by capitalism. What's the core trait that you say that's capitalism, whereas that over here isn't? This idea... Of, I feel that capitalism has been defined as, number one, a market economy. It has aspects of being deregulated, which I don't abide by at all, not because I don't like the idea of deregulation. It's because I don't think human beings are mature enough to self-regulate. You mentioned Taoist thought before in passing. Well, I've been deeply involved in that. Uh, series of practices and thoughts Um, and if one self-regulates in the Taoist perspective or self-governs then you don't need external government so to speak you're self-governing however that requires a level of maturity that most human beings don't have so therefore we get it becomes imposed but coming back to your question It's basically a market-driven economy that is always seeking greatest expansion. Um, That is its definition. I believe that it can be personalized, sort of the way you are talking about it and the way I'm talking about it, and a lot of our colleagues would do a self-designed market economy that has humane and eco-friendly provisions built into it so we have a multiple bottom line, money being only one of a handful. Joy, gratitude, pleasure of a job well done, and even using competitiveness in that beautiful story you just told in Zanzibar, you know, where competition is being used to help own an end product or service. So it's a healthy competition instead of a uh, spiteful one, what have you. So did I answer? You did, but I want to say so many things. I'm going to have to be so so, uh, 
restrained here to make sure (laughs) there's so much to say. Okay. Go for it. So let's go with your definition of capitalism. It's essentially a market-based economy. Right. So under that definition, I think the market just as Adam Smith did, is a very powerful tool. It's an amazing, and I think Smith's great insight was that what the market does when we exchange goods and services through prices is it coordinates a huge number of people who never need to meet, who never need to talk, but through the price mechanism, they can demonstrate things they value more or less, uh, what the cost is, and we can produce uh, an exchange, an extraordinary number of goods and services that way. That's the power of the market. There is, of course, the caveat of the market, which is that it only values what's got a price and it only meets the needs of those who can pay. So I would say the market um, is one of the very valuable uh, provisioning systems in the economy, but it needs to be very wisely embedded. And I think that reflects what you were just saying. So whenever you haven't said this word, but often people say free market. And whenever I hear free market, I'll always say, I'm sorry, could you take me there? I've never been to a Does that mean everything's for free? Or or even there's absolutely no restrictions. I'm sorry, I've never been anywhere in a market where there's no restrictions. I mean, are you selling your children? Are you, you know, are you selling the sky? Is it free market, really? I don't think so. It doesn't exist because the regulations of the market are so deeply embedded that we often don't spot them. You can't sell AK-47s down on the street corner, you know. You can't sell people passports. You can't sell your children. There are regulations that frame every kind of market, so it's not free. However, let's go back to the, so the market. If, we, if you're defining capitalism as the market, I'd say markets are powerful, but I wouldn't want to live in an economy that was only the market because we also need the role of the state, I believe, to set the regulations of that space, but also to provide public goods that the market alone won't provide. Street lighting, vaccine. Firemen. Firemen. Policemen. I believe public education in the country I come from, I'm going to say it in America, public health, right? Healthcare. Well, the thing we love the most in the UK that unites British people is the National Health Service. Because when I need to go to hospital, if I'm giving birth, or if I've got a broken ankle, and I go into hospital, all they ask me is my name, my address, and my blood group. Because we've all paid taxes, and I believe that providing health care for everybody is one of the most fundamental social social uh, goods. goods of life goods. that mean that we can all thrive. So the market is important, but it needs to be working alongside the state. Those two are the financialized. They're, they're, they're the two parts of the economy that have a price on them. There's two others, really important parts. The household, where we all begin every day. All the unpaid care work of parents, and let's be honest, usually women, the cooking, washing, sweeping, cleaning, raising the children that produces labor for the economy. Labor, apparently, in economics, turns up, hey, presto, fresh and ready for work every day. Who who made the dinner? Who did the laundry? Who ironed the shirts? Who looked after them when they were sick? Who had the children so there'd be a next generation? So all that is missing from the mainstream economic story. So there's a household. So we've got the market, the state, the household. But there's also the commons. And this is so neglected in economic theory, most people say the what? So let me just say what the commons is. The commons is the space where people get together and self-organize to provide things they value without the market and without the state. Think of a community garden in a neighborhood where the, the people on the block say, hey, let's do this garden together. And they create rules about how we're going to do this. And there's an agreement. It's tacit often, and it's neighbors working together, and everybody enjoys that garden. But also think of Wikipedia. On the internet, there's a global virtual digital community getting together, following the rules of Wikipedia, contributing to create the world's greatest encyclopedia, free, online. We love working in the commons. Why is it that people volunteer late at night? 
right, to, to add things to Wikipedia. Why is it that the world's greatest operating system online is Linux? It was created by volunteers, free online at night. No one's paying them because we get... We free get, source, right? Yes, and we get we open source, and we get open great source. sense of um, recognition, satisfaction. satisfaction. We've contributed to something greater than ourselves. We've used our skills. We get recognized. These things, no money changing hands. So, to me, a healthy economy has a marketplace where goods and services are exchanged for money. It has a state that's providing social goods raised by taxes. It has a household where the, the fundamental well-being of love and care and raising and nurturing is provided, and it has a commons. And I wouldn't want to live in an economy that was missing any one of these forms of provisioning. Now, I said you were going to make me want to say a lot. So I believe in the market economy alongside these other forms of provision. Now to the capitalism word. When I think of capitalism, I think of an economy in which there is money, financial capital, whose purpose is to accumulate more money. And I think we today have a financial system which drives a business system which is designed for that. Let's go back to Aristotle. Aristotle had two words. He talked about economics which was the art of household management, literally how you manage your wealth and your assets from your home and your, the crops you harvest and the, the, the materials and belongings you have in your home. And there was another word he had, crematistic, and that meant the art of accumulating wealth. And Aristotle said, economics is great and important and we should master this. Crematistic, he said, is most unnatural. The idea that money can beget money is most unnatural because now we're back into the idea of endless growth where there's money that wants only to beget more money, which will beget more money. Now we've got the beginnings of a pattern of growth that must never end and it's beginning to look like a cancer. So I think of a capitalist economy as having that capital that begets capital that begets capital. And this is at the heart of Marxism as well, where Aristotle to Marx... They were onto something. So I worry when we have an economy whose financial system is structured merely to get capital. And that's what this financial rate of return is always after, right? And that's what the hedge funds are always after. And that's why we end up with financial crisis because they're chasing a return that's often built on nothing more than a subprime mortgage crisis. Mm. Powerfully put. Very interesting. When money begets money. And I want to humanize that because yeah, we can't end out, up with money. Well, we have to come back to the people. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because even in that condition which we live in now, yes, it can be plowed back based on the development and maturation of the person. Yes, into those other areas, economics into goods and services, into the home, and into the commons, which, by the way, also involve cultural pursuits, yes. artistic, yes. Uh, and uh, other pursuits such as feeding the homeless or feeding people and any number of different areas of charity work volunteer work, and this is massive, actually, across the planet. If we were to look at the work of uh, Paul Hawkins, who wrote The Ecology of Commerce way back and laid the groundwork for um, an environmentally sensitive green economy, I think this was back in the 70s. And no one wanted to hear it back then, 
They were all oiled up. <laughs> but things have changed. And his latest book, as I know, is uh, recall is called Blessed Unrest. And in it, it lists thousands of organizations, NGOs, nonprofits, for-profits, B-corporations, C-corporations, because it's not about the structure or the vehicle. It's about the people that are behind it. And that's why I'm always saying to my students and clients and uh, listeners that it appears that there are institutions, but that's just Oz in the free, in the front. When you go back and you change the curtain, move the curtain the way Toto did, you see a person. There's a person behind the facade, and that person actually, in most cases, no being a little facetious, has a heart. And, uh, and if there's a heart, there's actually the ability to reach somebody, whether it's through humor, art, food, love, friendship, good deed. There's a way of reaching, and that person may be controlling a whole lot in a corporation, in a country, in a region, politically, and they can say, this must change. So from that point of view, on paper, what you're saying about money begetting money, and I should say you and Aristotle um, and Marx, um, on one hand, academically, in a sense, or theoretically, that's true. However, unless that money, if that money is refunneled into the common good, then you've got a system that can work. I think that's absolutely right, and in fact, that's what a lot of today's foundations are doing. There's large foundations who are investing money in regenerating the land and regenerating communities. Where does that money come from? Mostly from 20th century capitalism that was about money that begets money that begets money. Those capitalists have children who become, and grandchildren who grow up surrounded by this wealth and nothing is too much, and many of them born into such wealth, ask themselves, where did this come from? What is this for? And actually, what are my values? And, and this is where so many foundations come from. I want to take this capital that's been financialized and gathered together as financial capital and actually reinvest it in the living world, reinvest it in communities. So philanthropy can sometimes be a front runner in this. And I think there's actually a responsibility among philanthropists to be, to show and demonstrate a different model because it can be directly from an individual's heart who happens to be sitting on an awful lot of money to say, I now choose to use this money, not to get more money, but that to regenerate the living world and regenerate communities. And so it sets a really good example of regenerative and distri distributive design. Then that's got to be followed through by companies and business models that also enables businesses that are gaining profit as part of their core business to be reinvesting that in regenerating the landscape, regenerating the community. Back to Janine Benyus. How can we layer so many benefits in that we can give some away? So I think those who have, like foundations, are a forerunner and a demonstrator of the direction we need to move in. It, it puts a responsibility on them. It also puts them in an exciting place of showing how we can create regenerative economies. It does come back to the individual. But I will say that I meet many people who are working for companies whose hearts absolutely are there, but they're not the CEO. And so they are limited by how much of themselves they can bring to work. They want to. They want their company to be more distributive and regenerative in its intentions, but they feel trapped 
by the demands of the shareholders. Even the CEOs, of course, feel trapped and have to express what they're doing in terms of don't, don't worry, this is going to add to your share value in the long term, even though that's not where they're doing it from at all. I meet academics. I meet people who teach economics in universities, and they say, look, I really agree with what you're doing, but to become a professor, I have to publish in these journals that are rated as the top journals, and it's the old-style economics. I have to teach this syllabus. My students have to pass these exams. So we do get boxed in and limited by the old systems and the structures around us. And sometimes, as you say, an individual can be transformative. And, and that's what those wonderful moments when an individual who's in a position to pivot a system brings their values out and can kick off a transformative change. One example is a man called Ray Anderson who ran a company oh, called yeah. Interface. That company, of course, I love he it. He saw a video about cradle-to-cradle design, and he had an epiphany, and he said, I am so inspired by the idea of... I think of he was watching Paul Hawken, actually. Really, and he, he said, I'm so inspired by this, I, I just want my company to jump to this transformative level. We're not going to be landfilling any old carpets anymore. We're going to unpick them and use the fiber again and again. We're going to be 100% renewable energy. We're not going to use any extra water. He just jumped to a transformative paradigm and clearly found such joy in it. That was what made it joyful to him. He became to be a the world CEO. leader he in did. the renewable energy and, uh, and, space. And the question to ask or, or the thing to learn from him was not how is your finance structured or how do you re remanufacture the fibers. It's where did this love and this joy come from yes. and how can others be infectiously mm. inspired by that? You're so right. He actually requ required his all of his vendors, all of his suppliers to meet certain environmental criteria if they were going to you to provide raw materials to him. Right. He became such a leader. I know that's a great example. Another example, Kate, that I'm thinking about right now is uh, and a segment I saw on 60 Minutes many, many, many years ago. I mean, literally, it could be 20 years ago of a privately held company. I think it was down in North Carolina. I don't even remember what they made. But he set up the company as a community, and he was being the the CEO was being interviewed, and he said, "Yes, we make a lot of money. I started with nothing, and I built it. And the way I built it is I made sure my employees, my staff, on all levels, were completely happy, and they wanted to stay because I believe that loyalty." to a company and a commitment to a company is worth a lot. So I started a health care system where everyone was taken care of. They didn't have to think about the cost out of their own pocket for health care. I made sure that um, there was child care. So I have a lot of people, husbands and wives, both living, I mean, sorry, not living here, working here. And they bring their kids in the morning. They they all ride together in one car. They drop the child off right here. They visit the, their child during lunch. They all have lunch together. You know, we have everything here. And honestly, at first I thought of the old Pullman days, you know, and the old railroad, et cetera, and even the Carnegie. You know, they had, you know, corporate towns, basically. And now that's the idea where it went awry, corporate store, the company store, because they were had an exploitative model. 
but it could have worked if they were kind and generous and thoughtful for their people, like this gentleman did. And he had, they had a golf course for crying out loud. No, I don't think that's very friendly. That's another conversation. But, you know, they provided all these kinds of services so that the employees would be very happy. And they interviewed some of these employees, and they said, uh, will you consider working somewhere else? Not a chance. No way. I'm here for good. I see the commitment he has made to us, and we in turn are making it to him and to the well-being of this company because this is a very human, humane context. Yeah, that, treats, that, that welcomes the whole person, recognizes the unpaid household care that I was talking about, right? A company that provides a crash, recognizes that there's all this unpaid work going on behind the scenes and that you enable women to be equal um, actors in the, the sphere of work as men, and that's incredibly important. Uh, it's, a, it's just a really good example of a company not stripping value out of its workers, saying, I only care about you when you arrive at the factory door. I want to extract maximum value out of you and send you off home. I don't care what happens between. Exactly. It's recognizing the whole system. So he sounds like a very holistic systems thinker, Absolutely. even if the words may not even existed in those days. That's right. That's right. Exactly. So we're going to wind up now. Um, I just wanted to extract something from what you were saying about the relationship of the market to the state to the home to the commons and say, not that it really matters because it's just a couple of words, but it looks like there's some kind of easygoing relationship between what we could call capitalism and socialism. Now, no, I, don't I don't like, like isms at all, frankly, of any sort, and I resist it. But um, what I hear is that there is an easygoing relationship. You know, I, I always laugh at Americans who say, we're a capitalist. And I say, oh, yeah, tell me about your fire department. Who pays for it, and how does it work? You know, oh, well, wait a minute, you know, or how about oil subsidies? No, 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 let's not talk about that, or farm subsidies, for that matter. You know, so I, I laugh all the time because – there are socialist measures in this world-sized capitalist system all over the place, literally all over the place, if people really want to name it for what we traditionally call socialistic measures, you know? So final words about that? So I would say in the extreme, maybe in American context and language, an economy that was almost all just market. And market that's driven by financial gain would be in a capitalist system. And I really don't want to live in an economy in which markets determine everything because it would be deeply unfair and deeply degenerative of the living world. At the same time, an economy in which the state ran almost every service and, you know, from your getting your hair cut to buying your lunch, I don't want to live in that economy. And maybe if that's what you're calling socialism, and I don't, I don't want oh, to live no. in, in that, that kind of economy either. What I see, actually, is that over time, over history, the market has often colonized the space of the commons by literally enclosing the land, but also looking to capture value that people create in the commons together. And we need to protect the commons and give it back more space in the 21st century, and also has squeezed the household and has ignored the unpaid care work that goes in the household. So we need to create economies that respect the value given to an economy by all four of these forms of provisioning, and that they can work so well together, and of course, the most innovative entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs, you, 
this century are think of the ones who figure out how to bring them together. What happens when you create a, a business that's based in the market but that's built on um, technologies and open source software that's in the commons? What happens when you have a public-private partnership or the, the state working together with the commons? These, it's about the, the models that work in hybrid across these. Again, that's where many of the most innovative people today are working. So we need to bring these ideas back into our language. And the diagram in my book, which puts the economy in these four for provisioning market, common state, and household, embedded within society, embedded within the living world. I wish that was the first diagram that every economics student encountered when they first study economics, because it gives us the big picture. And it allows us to ask the really big questions that matter about economics the economy's dependence upon the living world and not pushing it out of kilter. It's dependence upon society and recognizing that society is so much bigger than the economy and the different ways we can provide. If we started economics there, we'd be so much the wiser for it. That is beautiful and a fantastic idea to end on. I want to just thank you so much, Kate Rayworth, for your good work. And uh, you're inspiring. You're really inspiring. Well, thanks for a lovely conversation. You always know you've had a good conversation when you've said things you've never said before, so thank you for that. <laughs> Absolutely. My pleasure. We have been speaking with the author of Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist, Kate Rayworth, who, as you hear, is way far ahead of most economists. So much so that, I don't know, we may have to generate a new name for her because Economist doesn't quite fit. But uh, I want to just thank you all for listening. I so appreciate your, your kind attention to our work here at A Better World. Remember, we are a nonprofit. We so appreciate your donations. It keeps us sustained. And I like to tell people, invest in a better world. It will pay off. So thanks again for listening. Go to our website, www.abetterworld.net or TV, either one, and mitchellrabin.com. And I look forward to seeing you all next week.